Welcome to episode 82 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm Kate Rowland, family physician and associate professor at Rush University. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. Uh, Kate and Dr. Tina Wheaton and I will be in French Lick, Indiana for the very first live, live essential evidence course in well over a year. I am both excited and apprehensive. It's been a long time since I've been before a live audience. You'll, you'll knock it out of the park, Henry. You always do. I'm sorry I can't join you guys. The travel is a little of a challenge right now, but um, looking forward to it. On this podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters or poems if you want all of the poems. Uh, and why wouldn't you want all of the poems? They're great. They can keep you up to date. You get about 25 a month. Plus, you get this great primary care reference. It has over 800 chapters uh, everything and, and really a focus on primary care, urgent care, ED and hospital medicine written by and for specialists, but also primary care physicians. So check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions that we express on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. For a nominal annual fee, we'll give you these details again later, you can get CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. Uh, just go to IAFP.com, click on the online IAFP education webpage, and find our podcast to claim credit. This week, we're going to discuss rapid stool tests in kids with community-acquired diarrhea, a guideline for managing patients with acute GI bleed, and how long should we give ambulatory kids with community-acquired pneumonia antibiotics. Kate, take us away. Sure. So this first study comes from Cotter and colleagues at Children's Hospital Colorado, and they looked at what happened when their institution made rapid PCR testing for GI pathogens available. The study examined more than 6,700 patients, average age of six, about 40% of whom were in the ambulatory setting and 20% more were in the ED. The rest were inpatients. So the key thing they were looking at was the period of transition from conventional stool studies for infectious pathogens, OVA and parasites, direct fluorescent antigen assays for GRD and cryptosporidium, bacterial culture, and electron microscopy for viruses, to a single study of PCR testing for 22 different pathogens, including parasites, bacteria, and viruses. The outcomes they assessed included hospital length of stay, resource use, pathogens detected, and time to treatment during this transition. So they were more or less assessing to see whether the PCR test led to better care. The first thing they found was that the proportion of patients who received a stool test went up after the PCR test was introduced. It was a relative increase of about 21%. And the tests were more likely to be positive, about 40% with the PCR test versus 11% with the conventional test. And most of the positives were viruses, about 54%. The PCR test came back almost a day sooner than the older tests. They came back in four hours compared with 31 hours. And this did lead to faster treatment by about the same amount of time for patients who needed antibiotic or antiparasitic treatment. But this was only about 3% of the total inpatient group. And for the same group, the people who got the antimicrobial treatment, length of stay was reduced by two days after the introduction of the faster tests. And the newer tests were also associated with an impressive $20,000 median decrease in hospital costs for people who did get antimicrobial therapy. 
So again, that was a small number, 3%, and there was no reduction in length of stay or cost of care when all patients, regardless of, of test outcome or treatment, were considered together. So the takeaways here are a little bit mixed. Clinicians ordered substantially more tests. Most patients who were tested were seen in the ambulatory or, or ED setting. Most patients had a negative test, and the majority of positive tests were viral and treated with supportive care. For the few patients who were sick enough to be admitted, who had a disease that could be detected and treated more quickly with the newer tests, the PCR test made a substantial difference in length of stay and cost of care. For the vast majority of patients, it didn't. So this is an interesting one for me. It, it really matters to the people it matters for, but can we get good enough at figuring out who those people are to use this test in, a, in sort of a wise way? Henry, what do you think? I agree. Uh, and I'm going to pick on physicians in particular. I don't know enough about what our advanced uh, uh, practice professionals do in terms of test ordering. I'm not as familiar because often they're in consultation with us or using guidelines, but daggone it, we really love our tests. Even when they don't really add value, they don't change our diagnostic or our therapeutic plan. And, and as you pointed out, we really do need to be judicious, especially in the out patient area, because that's where we have um, the most of the patients who were in this study. And for most of those individuals, with rare exception, the treatment is primarily supportive. It's not where antimicrobials tend to lie. It's in those individuals with invasive diarrhea. And so caution, alert, here comes another plug for Essential Evidence Plus. In Essential Evidence Plus, we actually have several prediction rules and calculators to help to figure out which of these individuals are most likely to have invasive diarrhea. And some of those things are based on, oh my gosh, really difficult things like do they have a fever? Do they have severe abdominal pain out of the uh, out of uh, proportion to what you'd expect? Do they have bloody diarrhea? Those are the individuals for whom we ought to be focusing, and maybe those who are sick enough to be on the inpatient setting, as you point out. There's big savings uh, both in time and in cost. Mark. So yeah, this is a really important kind of study, and not only about GI and kids, but you know, where these multi-pathogen PCR panels are quite expensive. They're very cool. And we always like cool tests in particular and new tests in particular. And yeah, they make us feel like scientists, right? We're gathering data and we're making decisions based on data. And, and as you pointed out, Kate, sometimes it's a great thing for a subset. It's really super helpful and can be very beneficial. The vast majority it makes little or no difference. And so I think you're right that what we need is to figure out rather than ordering this panel on every kid with diarrhea or every person with a cough or, you know, how do we identify those that are most likely to benefit in terms of changing our prescribing, getting them out of the hospital sooner? I think a formal, not only clinical prediction rules, but also a formal cost effectiveness analysis that, you know, balances the costs and burdens of doing these tests in everybody versus the very large benefit for a very small number. And so there's a lot more work to do, but I'm, I'm really glad people are doing this kind of study and at least thinking about, hey, you know, what, what are we getting? What's the bang for our buck when we order these tests? So great stuff. Um, Kate, I think it's your turn to do the quiz this week. That's right. All right. Which one of the following is true regarding the effect of vitamin C co-administration with iron supplementation in patients with iron deficiency anemia? A, 
it makes the hemoglobin better. B, it makes the hemoglobin worse. C, it has no effect on the hemoglobin. Stay tuned. All right, thanks. Henry, um, tell us about upper GI bleed. Thank you. Uh, my poem asks the question, what is the optimal approach to managing patients with acute upper gastrointestinal and ulcer bleeding? This is a guideline that was published in May um, uh, in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, sponsored by the American College of Gastroenterology. And they convened a five-person panel <clears throat> who formulated a whole bunch of statements, about 16 statements that the guideline was supposed to address. Uh, by the way, they violated some of the rules of guideline development, at least some of the modern rules. Uh, they didn't really describe the um, explicit areas of expertise that each of the individuals had, how they were selected. There was no patient representation and there was no unclear primary care or emergency care representation. And uh, they did have two of the individuals who declared a conflict of interest. So it was less than, than half, which is consistent with some um, recommendations. Uh, for each of the areas, they did a very broad search of multiple databases, and uh, and reg clinical trials registries, and they tried to put an emphasis on randomized trials, but when those were lacking, they resorted to other forms of evidence to guide their recommendations. And then they used the grade system to basically tell us what was the quality of their recommendations. Um, <clears throat> Now, many of the things in the guideline really address things that might be of interest to endoscopists and other ologists, but there were a couple that I thought were worthy of note for primary care and maybe emergency department physicians. Um, the strong recommendation, though, there was one that was comes right out of the duh, okay? There are some emergency department physicians who do endoscopies. And so one of their duh recommendations was that if you're scoping somebody and you see a spurting artery or active bleeding, take care of it right then and there. They also made a strong recommendation to use high dose proton pump inhibitors for three days after you successfully treat a bleeding ulcer. Okay. Now, there are a whole bunch of um, conditional recommendations, one of which was to risk stratify patients in the emergency department using some kind of a tool. And they specifically mentioned the Glasgow Blatchford scale, but there are some others like the Rockall, and we have all of those um, in essential evidence. Um, they also recommend restricting transfusing uh, patients uh, with red blood cells until the hemoglobin falls below seven. Another conditional recommendation was that the endoscopy should occur within 24 hours. I, I'm assuming that that means the individuals who are hemodynamically stable. And then they also recommend that those high-risk patients that are treated successfully with endoscopy, that they should receive twice-daily proton pump inhibitors for at least two weeks, and that if you've got a patient who has recurrent bleeding after endoscopy, that they should undergo further repeat endoscopy and treatment rather than surgery or transcatheter arterial embolization. So that may be a little bit beyond our scope, but it's important information for us to know because when we're caring for the patient on the floor and they break loose, we'd like to know what is the appropriate next step. 
They did not make any recommendations for or against pre-endoscopic treatment with a proton pump inhibitor. So for me, the bottom line was that there are some things that we could take home from this um, guideline. Um, I do want to put a plug in for our essential evidence courses, because this year, one of the topics is guidelines you can trust, where we talk about what are the um, hallmarks of a, an evidence-based guideline and where do we find those things. So I, I did pick on this specific guideline a little bit, but the American College of Gastroenterology historically has done a really decent job with their guidelines in the last several years. I've reviewed many of them, and they do uh, tend to report all of the things that I've, um, that I've been concerned about with this one. Um, this, this guideline was just lacking in its, in its descriptions. Thanks, Henry. You know, I think that the um, these guidelines have gotten better over time. Having as someone who's been like you looking at guidelines for twenty plus years, um, yeah, probably more than that. You know, they have gotten better over time. There has been guidance from the um, uh, you know Institute of Medicine and others, and I think many of these societies have heeded these guidelines. And as they've heeded the guidelines, interestingly, people different guideline organizations have gotten more similar results. I was just looking at Essential Evidence Plus, and we have, of course we have the Glasgow-Blashford score, and that one involves both history and laboratory evaluation. If you don't want to talk to patients at all, there's the C-Watch score, which is just uh, six lab tests, basic lab tests, CRP, uh, white blood cell count, ALT, serum creatinine, platelets, and hemoglobin. So you can just get a CBC, ALT, creat, and a C-reactive protein and calculate that risk of bleeding. And so, uh, yeah, a number of these risk scores that you can find at the Essential Evidence Plus. Kate? Yeah, I'm, I'm reading through these and sort of feel like they, uh, a lot of these really do come up from the, I guess we could have guessed that without this guideline category. Um, but I, I am kind of glad to see some of them reiterated. So in a couple of different systems where I've worked, um, restricted transfusion has, has taken its time and sort of taking hold. So, so it's nice to see that reiterated. Um, and then things like, you know, when the, the timing of endoscopy um, is also uh, useful to see, just again, to sort of get some, uh, some guidance. It would be nice if, if we could be, be confident about the science behind that recommendation. But uh, again, some things I think I'm glad to see taking hold and reiterated by the, the specialty organizations. Yeah, that's always a challenge. I know I remember uh, the experience of writing uh, thromboprophylaxis orders. I got to get a pre-op consult on somebody undergoing orthopedic surgery, often a joint replacement. And I'd write the guideline recommend thromboprophylaxis. And, you know, I'd come back the next day and the order had been canceled by the surgeon because blood clots differently in Athens, Georgia than it does elsewhere. So <laughs> there is that implementation issue, which we all deal with. And, our, and often our specialty colleagues are behind us in terms of understanding and maybe relying more on pathophysiologic or anatomic reasoning and personal experience and less on uh, evidence-based guidelines. But that's a battle we will continue to fight. So uh, thank you for that discussion. Uh, the last poem we're going to talk about today is about antibiotic therapy for kids with community-acquired pneumonia. It was from Pernica and colleagues in JAMA Pediatrics in 2021, the SAFER randomized clinical trial. So they asked the question in kids with pneumonia who don't need hospitalization, is five days of high-dose amoxicillin comparable, not inferior, to 10 days of high-dose amoxicillin? Uh, 
And so they, this was a non-blinded study, but they did conceal allocation, which is important. Um, it took place uh, before the COVID-19 pandemic in two emergency departments in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, they enrolled kids aged six months to 10 years who had a chest X-ray or, or other imaging that showed a community-acquired pneumonia, but they weren't felt to be sick enough to be hospitalized. They randomized 281 of these kids to either five dose of high dose amoxicillin, which is 75 milligrams per kilogram to 100 milligrams per kilogram per day, plus five days of placebo or to a full 10 days of the high dose amox. This dosing was based on Canadian Pediatric Society guidelines, and it does allow for a slight variation just to simplify administration, pill size, and reduce dosing errors. Uh, and I think that's very pragmatic and sensible and Canadian. I like that. After two to three weeks of follow-up, uh, more kids who got five days of treatment uh, had a clinical cure, numerically more, 85.7% versus the 10-day group, which was 84.1%. So not a statistically significant difference, but certainly non-inferior and slightly superior. Additionally, the number of days lost in caregiving was lower in those uh, treated for five days, two versus three days. And there was no difference in absenteeism among the kids, which was one day for each group. Limitations of the study, as I said, include that it wasn't blinded. They lost about 10% of kids in each group to follow up, which is not terrible. It's not super great. It's kind of mediocre. Um, the study was designed as a non-inferiority study. They had adequate numbers to confidently say that this was non-inferior, and I, I agree with their assessment. So bottom line in this study, kids with community-acquired pneumonia treated as outpatients, five days of high-dose amox has cure rates comparable to those who were treated for 10 days. Kate. I like so many things about this study. I like that it means that we can potentially give less antibiotic to sick kids. I like that it it really mirrors what we do in, in real life. It's very comparable to what we would do in real life. So this is kids not sick enough to be in the hospital, kids that we would potentially be diagnosing in the office, um, and then being able to follow them up and knowing that that five days for most kids is, is going to be comparable to 10 days, and then potentially being able to follow those kids up either with a phone call, with a check-in, or even with another office visit at that five-day mark to make sure that they are in the category of kids who are going to be doing fine. There are, you know, 15% of kids um, who, in both groups, who, who weren't better at the end of treatment, no matter what. Um, and so maybe wanting to check in on those kids, uh, no matter how long they got their antibiotics for. But um, I, this one's an easy one for me to adopt as, as a person who's, who's inclined to do less whenever I can. Um, and again, knowing that I'm going to be following these kids up no matter what. I like this. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. That follow-up is so important. Um, you know, it's like the pirate's code. It's a guideline, right? It's it's something that's, you know, general, it's guide, it's a guideline and, and everybody's different and, and we don't want to be thinking in lockstep with these things, but I think it's a great starting point. Let's assume we're going to use five days for most kids. And, um, you know, if we need to do something different, we can, kids aren't getting better, then, then you also should be rethinking the diagnosis or the pathogen or the coverage or whatever. But, um, you know, fortunately, the vast majority of these kids were doing better. And it's in line nicely with the adult recommendations of, of five days, you know, at least five days, but no more if you don't have to. Henry, any uh, parting comments on this one? Of course I have comments. I knew it. <laughs> yes. I knew it. Yes. So among the reasons one might consider doing a non-inferiority trial include opportunities to reduce cost, 
opportunities to, in the case of medications, reduce exposure to potentially toxic substances, reduce side effects, if you will, uh, convenience, uh, but also as part of a ploy for use in marketing of a new product. Now, in this case, it's um, amoxicillin, so there isn't necessarily a commercial issue here. So if we look at cost, five days versus 10 days, well, amoxicillin's dirt cheap, so you're probably saving a buck or two maybe on the direct cost of medication. Um, the convenience, the lost days of school, the lost days of work because of caregiving, now that's a big cost, but it also gets into that convenience factor. Side effects, I went back to the study and I guess I'm a little bit concerned that among the, what was it, uh, 281 children that, uh, first of all, they, they reported anaphylaxis and severe adverse, adverse uh, drug um, events, which you wouldn't expect to see many in a small study, and, they, and there were none. But only one person, one child in each group had what they called minor um, adverse drug events. And there was no discussion about diarrhea in particular. And we know from other studies that high-dose amoxicillin, we've seen numbers needed to squirt in the single digits. And so um, there's just something a little bit fishy about having a study with high-dose amoxicillin in children where diarrhea is not listed as one of the issues. Hmm. Number needed. To, I'm not even going to go there. Not even going to go there. And hey, by the way, I should say, we uh, John Hickner has not been sacked uh, for ill behavior. He's actually <clears throat> uh, vac vacationing somewhere at an undisclosed location where we can't bother him. So uh, John will probably be back in a couple of weeks. We're, we're looking forward to that. Um, Kate, I think you're going to close us out with the quiz answer. That's right. So the question again is, which of the following was true regarding the effect of vitamin C co-administration with iron supplementation in patients with iron deficiency anemia? So the correct answer for those of you keeping track was C. Co-administration of vitamin C and ferrous sulfate did not improve hemoglobin levels more than ferrous sulfate alone. This comes from a study of about 400 adults with iron deficiency anemia. The study randomized patients to TID iron plus placebo or TID iron with 200 milligrams of vitamin C. And after three months, there was no difference in hemoglobin, reticulocyte counts, or ferritin levels. Adverse effects were similar in both groups. Vitamin C may help with absorption of iron physiologically, but it doesn't seem to translate to a better CBC. Interesting. And that's one of those things I've always been told to do, and everybody has high level of belief, but belief isn't evidence, is it? And I'm sure there's great pathophysiologic reasoning behind that, but yeah, it doesn't work. Okay, excellent. Um, so thanks everybody for listening today. Um, Henry, do you have something to recommend for us? Well, since John isn't here, we thought that from time to time when one of us is absent, we might make a, an art or literary recommendation. So the Olympics just opened and we've got a few games underway. I'm sorry, U.S. women and German men's soccer teams, just horrific first days. Uh, but and the opening ceremonies take place tomorrow. So there's a film that I would encourage people to uh, look at. It's called 16 Days of Glory. This is a documentary by Bud Greenspan uh, from the 1984 Los Angeles Games. And part of this is not just showing 
the competition, but the backstories of these athletes and some of them from sports that we don't normally get to watch unless you have a specific interest in it. And not just American athletes, but from multiple um, uh, nations. Now, in spite of all of the injuries and illnesses that this, the, the, that many of these athletes have had to overcome, some of this played out in the actual games themselves and in the outcomes. Now, somehow, Bud Greenspan's not monotone narrative style still does not detract from the tension he's able to build, and, and there's a certain poetic nature to the stories. So I would encourage you. It's called 16 Days of Glory. And I was just looking. It looks like it's available on YouTube for a free uh, streaming, I, I think. It looks like it is. So um, I will check that out. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, thanks, you guys, for your contributions. Fun as always. Um, to get CME credit, IAFP.com. Click on online IAFP education website. The IAFP is accredited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. They designate this podcast for one half AMA category one credit. The IAFP, of course, adheres to the conflict of interest policy of the ACCME and the AMA. You can read our complete disclosure on their website. I uh, hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Tell your friends. Rate us on iTunes, uh, post us in social media. We'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates.